This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Last year, you might remember, there was a national debate about the historical accuracy of monuments such as James Cook statues that claimed he uh, um, discovered Australia. Our next guest, like many other people, has been arguing for years that we need to front up to the fact that so many of our monuments and statues are historically and even offensively incorrect. Journalist Paul Daly spoke to us earlier about the essay he's written in the latest Me Engine and why he thinks when it comes to nomenclature in Australia, we need to grow up. So the problematic nature of Australia's colonial statues only really, I guess, gained mainstream traction in 2017, as you write, Paul, yet Aboriginal people have long railed against them and you mentioned in particular Gary Foley and Tony Birch who've both been on this program previously speaking in particular around the problematic naming of buildings at the University of Melbourne but why is it that this really did um, I guess uh, raise mainstream attention in 2017 what were the events that led up to that? Um, look some of us have been writing about it for a long time and as you say um, Foley and Birch had been you know, agitating about nomenclature, particularly at Melbourne Uni, but elsewhere too for, you know, 20 or more years. But um, it took a piece by um, a television personality, a guy called Stan Grant, um, to actually get this into um, public consciousness, um, sort of mid-last year, I think it was. And after that, um, it kind of kind of lit a match, really, which sent kind of the, um, um, the reactionaries on fire really they they um they suddenly decided that what was being said was that these statues ought to be removed or you know demolished or defaced which was not um what anyone was saying at all yeah and you write in your piece in Mianjin that it's uh i mean there's lots of approaches to addressing um the way that monuments represent history and one of them is to put up plaques that show more than one perspective on the person that's you know, up there in bronze, uh, and yet in the public discussion, it really came down to people want to deface these monuments or remove them. Yeah, exactly. And look, a couple of them were um, defaced, vandalised, and it's not the first time that that's happened. And of course, you know, no, no one, no one could rationally support the the defacement of, of you know, public property. But um, I think, from my point of view, this started like a long overdue public discussion that gave it oxygen which is which is great and and you know some of these statues i don't think represent history in in any way i mean the the macquarie statue in in that was erected in sydney in 2013 for example you know has a has a plaque on it that says um he was a perfect gentleman a christian and a supreme legislator of the human heart well i just can't see any um any cultural or historical value now um, let alone any truth in um, in a statue that says that about Macquarie in 2013, given all that was known about him at the time. Um, you know, others other statues are certainly products of their time. That's not to to justify you know the deification of the people they um, and the mythologisation of the people they they represent, but but they can be understood in that context if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, it's clear with the Cook statue, which was erected in the 19th century, and with the the word discovered this territory emblazoned on it that I mean obviously that's uh, incorrect um, but also a very clear product of the kind of colonial imag- imagination that was re- you know very much driving British settlement and, in- and invasion around that time but with Macquarie this was something that was erected a, a statue in 2013 
2013 when, um, frankly, we should kind of know better, shouldn't we? Precisely, and, and you know that's that's my point. And um, I think you know those that dedicated the statue, include in 2013, including the governor of New South Wales and um, and uh, the Lord Mayor of Sydney, should have should have known at that point that, that Macquarie was a far more questionable character than than you know this um, uh, this statue purports him to be. And so, sort of as a as a cultural symbol, as a historical symbol, it just um, just is meaningless as, as far as I'm concerned. Whereas other other statues, you know, if you look at Batman or even Cook, you can look at them perhaps as products of of a pervading sentiment of the day and discuss them. Uh, let's 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 talk about um, let's talk about these guys. Um, but I, I just don't think the Macquarie statue has the same um, historical status. And it is interesting, it does come down to who gets to decide to put these things up because I think there's a lot of people that would walk around and prefer to see different kinds of you know, public art or whatever that inspire the public instead of putting up symbols that really celebrate the history of, of tyrants in some ways. And I, I wonder what it is about those people that like monuments that make it okay to make them to people that are really quite polarising figures and, as you say, don't actually represent the historical record. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's about events too. I mean, I, I lived in Canberra for a long time and really, you know, thought pretty hard about the symbolic nature of the landscape there. So at the one end, you've got the... Um, uh, the the, the parliament, the one end of the axis, and at the other end you've got um, uh, the Australian War Memorial, um, which really kind of hangs off a um, an Australian foundation story, 1915, mind you, um, uh, of of Gallipoli. But nowhere in Canberra, nowhere in between, is there an official monument of any sort um, to frontier conflict, uh, to frontier war, and the many tens of thousands of Indigenous people who. Um, who died in the process of, of defending this, this continent from um, invasion? So it, it, it is really it is really vexed. The thing I'm kind of gratified about at the moment is that that we are um, involved in an ongoing um, conversation, um, and you know it should be it should be dignified and it, and it should be intelligent. But I think um, you know essays like the one I've just done kind of play into that and you know Mark McKenna fantastic historian has just done this quarterly essay called Moment of Truth about history in Australia's future so I think I think we're entering a different phase I'm pretty optimistic actually and I'm optimistic that something like Australia Day if we've got to have an Australia Day uh, won't be on the 26th of uh, January um, you know at some point in my lifetime. I was um, thinking, actually, when you were saying about the Parliament House and also the War Memorial, that right in the middle, actually, is the the kind of, I suppose, permanent but temporary structure of the Aboriginal tent embassy, which I always thought was quite symbolic. Yeah, it should remind yeah, us. Yeah, yeah abs- abs- absolutely. I mean, the, the, the tent embassy is is a really, you know, it, it um, it's more than sim- symbolic. It's a, it's a, it's a living, ongoing protest, and and, it, and um, you, you're quite right. It's right there in the um, middle of a view of both. Absolutely, and and it does it does you know sim- symbolise um, resistance and and the speaking of um, truth to that to that legislative white legislative power too. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, my only point was there's no official monument um, 
um, you know, no, no, no monument that's been, um, been, you know, paid for by, um, by Australian, Australian taxpayers to, um, to frontier conflict in, in the ACT. Yeah, and yet, of course, there's so much myth-making around um, wars that Australia's fought in, most notably, of course, um, the Anzac myth, which we spend so much, so much time and, and money in uh, rehashing every year. But uh, it's interesting to hear your, I guess, optimism, Paul, around, um, you know, the fact that the conversation may be shifting around the way that we um, memorialise or commemorate our history and, and um, cover off on those kind of darker patches. I was walking around this morning in the suburb um, of Preston, just near Triple R here, which is also in the Federal Electorate of Batman, and you speak oh, yeah, about kind yeah. of the, the, you know, the problematic um, naming of, of that um, electorate as well as a bunch of other things. But I came across a, a monument uh, to victims of genocide, and, and that particular monument includes a statement around the attempted extermination of Aboriginal people in Australia. And I, I remember when that was erected, it didn't come without its fair share of c- controversy, but it is there, um, you know, in the middle of a park for people to see and, and perhaps can, can um, you know, have an impact um, in a very, very particular and, and limited sense, I guess, but for people walking through that park to educate themselves around that aspect of our history. Absolutely. And those, those sorts of monuments are popping up all over the continent and there are every year um, you know, ceremonies, quite solemn ceremonies, attended by Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, people of all uh, religious persuasions, to commemorate to remember um, some of these massacres. So, you know, a couple of years ago, it was 200 years since um, the terrible Appen massacre, which um, Macquarie um, ordered. And um, there's a so there's a ceremony uh, down there at, uh, at the river every year. And every year now, there's a there's a uh, Mile Creek commemoration as well, which is which is really well attended. Um, so I do think it's. It's really interesting, I think, that uh, in some ways the Australian landscape is being reclaimed by some of these um, Indigenous monuments and, and by the act of commemoration too. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that this landscape, so much of it was renamed with these really disturbing names, you know, Skeleton Creek, Skull Hole, Massacre Bay, all that sort of thing, not to commemorate the dead, but to commemorate the actual act of murdering them. Um, and I think, you know, the longer you live in Australia, you grow up in Australia, you can travel travel around with your mum and dad as a kid and go, oh, that's an interesting name, what's that about? But no one really talked about it, you know, not in, not in my generation anyway. Paul Daly is speaking with us and he's written about monuments uh, in the latest Mianjin and talking about the renaming of places. I was actually at Melbourne Airport uh, recently and on one of the boards there, there was a flight to Ayers Rock and it was prompting conversations in the in the, the airport lounge where people's going, what? <laughs> Someone said, yeah, where yeah. is Ayers Rock? And, they, and so people can adjust to Uluru as, as the... The, the name of that renamed rock there in, in Central Australia, and yet there's some that still keep using the old name. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, my 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 kids, for example, would not they they'd ask that question, "Where's there's Rock?" You know, um, they know they know it as Uluru. Um, but I think it's really interesting that. Um, you know, some of these place names and some of these elect- electorate names, Batman's a really good example, you know, with the by-election recently. Um, and, you know, over, over in the West, you've got um, Canning and uh, in Victoria, Macmillan. You know, these are all named after, after people who mistreated terribly 
murdered um, Indigenous Australians. And I think there's a really interesting argument at the moment, and I'm in sort of in two minds about whether these places should be renamed or whether, you know, at some point you just decide, well, the conversation is now so expansive that um, people know who these who these people were and what and what they did. Um, so in, in some senses there's there's an argument for, for keeping those names because you don't want people to forget once they know. Uh, and the same can be said for statues as well. I mean, you know, I firmly believe that some of these statues and maybe the Macquarie one is, a, is an exception. I just see it as pointless. But some of the others can actually serve um, the correction of history, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and, and as I guess we touched on at the beginning, that process of, of change and, and reflecting on what we do with these statues now can uh, elicit a really strong response and a backlash in, in the public. And you um, include, uh, I guess, a perspective around Professor Bronwyn Carlson, the head of Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University, following an interview she did on Radio National, where essentially, um, you know, she explained the, the painful experience of, of being Aboriginal and living in a society where colonisers are venerated in building streets and statues and really it seemed like quite a benign statement but there was a very fierce backlash that came her way in the wake of that yeah there was she was um she shared a couple of the emails she received um including from from students but um she she had a really strong you know really sort of virulent public backlash including from a couple of her students who um who didn't name themselves but claimed that they were her students and there's no reason to think that they weren't um, who were really critical of her questioning. Um, it wasn't even questioning, it was just kind of uh, talking about, articulating how she felt about walking through a landscape which, as you say, venerates so many, um, so many mostly men who, um, who killed her ancestors. Yeah, and some of those emails were, I would almost say, sort of trolling emails, so it really, some of it was a little bit ugly. Yeah, yeah, it, it was, it was. And, and bear in mind, you know, she walks onto a campus most days, you know, called Macquarie. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not too hard, even as a non-Indigenous person, I think, to, to try to imagine how that must feel. I mean, you know, I find it offensive and I'm, I'm not Indigenous. Yeah, and I think um, the example uh, that we've mentioned a couple of times about the statue erected in 2013 shows that we're still capable of ignoring history when we name places and streets and so forth. Uh, is there? Do you get a sense that within the institutions that get to choose names that there is a consciousness around these issues now, that it's not just a certain sector of the community's views that should be kind of put up on a street sign, but that it's um, meaningful to others, whether they uh, hate or revere somebody, that everybody perhaps might have a view on what should be there? Yeah, look, I, I reckon just in the in the case of case of Sydney, certainly there seems to be an awareness within you know Sydney City Council and the, the Lord uh, Mayor is is Clover, um, that you know you need to think these things through really carefully. Um, that you know you need to know who you're talking about and do the due diligence on them absolutely before you. Um, memorialise them. I, I think, you know, it's it's a while back now, but I I do remember reading that in the case of this Macquarie statue um, and the Cook statue, there was some sort of internal kind of rethink 
of how they ought to be handled. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me, uh, you know, I, I don't know uh, whether any action is going to be taken in relation to the Cook statute, but it wouldn't surprise me if at some point um, something happened in relation to, to the Macquarie statute. Yeah, and it, it comes down, I guess, also to consultation and, and speaking to the right people, and in particular Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people around that as well. And we've seen that, um, you know, the, the idea of consultation has kind of a messy history in this country. If we just look at the Uluru Statement from the Heart, for example, which hasn't as yet amounted to anything. But you start your piece speaking about uh, being on a boat heading to uh, a plaque commemorating Benelong. And even even that, even though it is essentially the commemoration of a very prominent um, Aboriginal leader, that sort of gets things wrong and presents a particular historical perspective around his role. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I hadn't... I'd heard that that little plaque to Benelong was there. It's not too far as the ferry goes from from my place in, in the inner west in Sydney, but um, I caught the ferry up there and, and found this little plaque in a, in a pretty anodyne um, sort of cutting. It's not even a a, a park in, in suburban Sydney and um, the plaque reads, Benelong was an Aborigine who befriended the first colonist, lived for a while as Governor Phillips' guest and visiting, visited England where he became the toast of society. Um, it sort of defines him <laughs> totally in relation to the, to the white fella. It defines him sort of out of his Indigenous existence. I, I found it quite bizarre, like saying that you know he was Governor Phillips' guest. Um, you know, Philip was uh, after all in 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 Eora country, you know. Um, it, it was, I, I just found it pretty. <laughs> it's it's pretty telling, bizarre. isn't it? <laughs> it? It is telling. It sort of totally denied uh, Benelong agency, and he, and you know I tried to point out. You know, I don't know a lot about Benelong. Many people know far more about him than me. But but I, what little I do know of him, it, it certainly seemed to me that that totally denied him agency. You know, um, so it's not. There's there's not that much intrinsic truth to it um it doesn't doesn't do his life justice but it was actually um done in the um i i guess it was done around the time of the um the bicentenary where you know indigenous um sentiments were pretty much trampled on nationally and Paul, you, uh, you have written on these issues and many people have for a long time and actually this is a beautifully written essay as well in the latest Miange and looking at monuments and the culture around it. I wonder where you see the conversation going. You say you're optimistic. Do you think we will continue to discuss what we do with the kind of legacy of monuments we have and, and also have a look at some of the electric names and, and other significant names that we do have and revise them or do you think it really is the kind of polarising uh, approach to, to start to kind of have these discussions locally, each and every one, and make well, a decision? I think, I think some sort of reactionary trolls would, would make it into a, you know, left-right polarisation. I think about free speech and, you know, it's, it's more than that. I think um, there are many people on the, on the right and many people on the left and many people in the centre who you know, agree that we need to be um, honest in our approach to telling our history and, and how we reflect that in, you know, public landscape and, and, and monuments and nomenclature. And I, I just think um, we're at a point where we are capable of, um, of 
crossing a political divide on this stuff and, and talking honestly about it. Uh, I'm, I mean, I think, you know, there's been lots of lots of talk over many years in Australia about um, about a republic, but, you know, that's that's another thing that's linked to all of this. To my mind, there's no point talking about a republic until we sort out the whole question of conciliation, uh, you know, a meeting, um, a settlement between Indigenous and, and non-Indigenous Australians, and only then can we sort of work towards uh, a meaningful republic, a, a republic that means something to, to black and white Australians. And part of the big thing about the Uluru Statement, the thing that blackfellas really wanted was, was truth-telling in Makarata, truth-telling about, from their perspective, about what had happened. Um, so I think that's essential to, to moving forward. It's essential to, to the future of this country and, you know, how, how my kids and, and grandkids get to experience it. Yeah, it's so much more to be done and, and it'll be interesting to see where the conversation goes from here. But it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you uh, today, Paul. Um, listeners can read Paul's latest essay in the autumn edition of Meandrum, which is available now um, at bookstores and also online. And, of course, you can read uh, his regular column in The Guardian as well. Thanks so much for being on Triple R and hope to speak to you again at some point in the future. Fantastic. Thanks for your um, your interest. And equality is something that most people in Australia would probably say they support. Uh, access to affordable health care and education and the ability to, to get an income support when times are tough, very much at the heart of our welfare state. But despite these safety nets, we still have record levels of inequality in Australia, a reality that's leading some people to rethink the concept of the universal basic income. Uh, Brian Howe is a former Deputy PM of Australia in the Hawke and Keating governments and a professorial fellow at the University of Melbourne. He's written on universal basic income and it's great to have you at Triple R. Welcome. Thank you very much, Carla. And we should define what this is and I suppose how it's different to say something like New Start Payment. Yes, well, the Australian social security system is unique in the world. I mean, no other country, apart from New Zealand, fairly similar, uh, has that system. And it's tax-based and uh, it's essentially a flat rate uh, payment, although uh, we have means testing and so there's a kind of tapering away of uh, payments as people earn additional income. But it does require a lot of administration. And particularly when you get down to unemployment benefit. I think in Australia, if you talk about the pension, uh, well, people don't interfere too much. The person who is an age pensioner looks like an age, speaks like an age pensioner, is treated like an age pensioner. And they are there, stable in the system. And increasingly, they're being paid pretty well in the social security system, together with superannuation, uh, which means that uh, the coming age, of course, uh, will have both the pension uh, or maybe a part pension, then super on top. So they're going to do pretty well. But the other end of the spectrum uh, uh, is the new start or the unemployment benefit. And the unemployment benefit in Australia is, is highly conditional. All sorts of uh, traps around that payment. And, of course, if people... Uh, the workforce has changed, you know. We've got, uh, in Henderson's day, 50 years ago, in at least poverty inquiry, you had uh, work meant full-time, uh, I might say male work, not so much for women, uh, but it meant full-time permanent uh, jobs. And we had virtually full employment. Today... Uh, we have uh, quite a lot of underemployment, but more seriously, we have a lot of underemployment. That is, people who could work more hours if they were offered those hours, uh, but uh, 
very often they're not offered the hours that they need. So one in every five workers today is a casual, uh, a casual worker, and then underneath that, people are often dropping onto the safety net. And that's where we see real poverty and inequality uh, in Australia. And that's why uh, we're going back to Henderson uh, 50 years ago. He said, look, you could have a different system. Uh, you could pay people uh, unconditionally, uh, taper it away through the tax system so you don't uh, pay very much money to higher income earners. But at the bottom, you don't have a lot of fiddling and conditionality because he said that in a way is demeaning it uh, stigmatises, it creates a, a class of people who are seen as quite separate and it's destructive of people's confidence. And, and you mentioned Henderson. This is the um, Ronald Henderson, the inaugural director of the, the Melbourne Institute who undertook this inquiry in the 1970s. And we know what happened with the government at that time. The Whit Whitlam government, of course, was thrown out and, and this idea of a uh, universal basic income or the similar idea to what he put forward didn't eventuate in Australia. As you mentioned, we live in very different circumstances today the world of works changed does that make it more even more relevant and more of a pressing is issue today do you think yeah i think the digital revolution really has had a huge impact uh, in australia uh, the nature and quality of work has changed uh, in all sorts of ways we don't think today of australia as making things the way we uh, did in the post-war period in industrial economy we talk about a very different economy so-called information economy and of course, uh, for the intellectuals, for those at the uh, uh, the top of the university tree, uh, the great uh, biotechnology research centre that's around Melbourne University. Well, of course, there are tremendous and exciting and research jobs and all of that. But at the other end of the spectrum, uh, we might not really not clear what we're going to do about people who haven't got those top intellectual uh, skills or haven't had that education and training. And so, I think now we've got a uh, kind of underclass there of uh, of people that are being treated by Australia pretty shabbily. You know, Australia can't talk too easily about a welfare state because in Australia we took a long time to get anything like a welfare state. Really nothing much like it until Whitlam. And even since then we've added Medicare, but not much more. Compared to Europe, we give provide very low levels of protection. In fact, uh, New Start or unemployment benefit would be the lowest level of replacement income in the OECD. No other country is as tough on the unemployed uh, in the OECD as we are in Australia, and I think that's a, that's that reflects very badly on Australia. And as you say, um, there is stigma attached to these kinds of of payments, and I I wonder where you saw that start to creep in, or was it really there from the beginning? Well, I think it was there in the beginning in a sense. I think uh, that's why uh, Henderson, uh, who was uh, in uh, in that long time ago, but Henderson uh, saw that in Britain as well, you know, because they'd had the poor law and the long history of treating people, uh, unemployed people, especially pretty shabbily, and he wanted to do better. Uh, than that and that's why he proposed this uh, more unconditional payment and I think it's especially important at the lower end of the uh, of the of the spectrum because people uh, in a sense don't have uh, don't have much going for them at that uh, at that stage uh, stage of life so if they have no income then in a sense they feel uh, uh, quite uh, quite powerless now it's controversial uh, we difficult to uh, very difficult to achieve 
Uh, but uh, there are ways of moving forward. When we talk about universal basic income, we don't necessarily mean basic income for everyone. We might think of, say, a particular segment of the population. For example, when I was Minister for Social Security, I introduced really a kind of form of guaranteed minimum income for children and that resulted in very sharp increases in child uh, payments and much greater uh, benefits for uh, working uh, uh, working families, but also for not uh, uh, not only working families, for families who had no work. Also, their child payments went up. Went up uh, so we had the highest rate of increase in child payments in the 1980s of any country in the OECD. Now, I think we need to do something like that for youth payments because overwhelming people on Newstart tend to be uh, not all uh, not alone but overwhelmingly they tend to be people in the younger the younger age group. Yeah and there's a report out I think just today I was reading this morning from the Brotherhood of St Lawrence that um that, that talks about youth unemployment and the disparity I guess between those in cities and those in the regions where overall it might not seem that it's increasing at a particularly rapid rate but those who don't happen to live in major cities and, and fall into that age bracket experience very significant levels of unemployment find it very difficult to find a job. Yeah, during the Whitlam government and at that time they talked a lot about spatial inequality and I think that's gone right off the agenda and that's unfortunate because uh, the economy is becoming, uh, the whole economy is becoming not only concentrated on cities but concentrated on the inner area of cities. So if you go to the fringe or you go uh, to more provincial or regional rural uh, areas, you have in a sense a very different economy than the economy that's operating in the big uh, 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 urban centres of Brisbane, Sydney's, Melbourne. So as Australia becomes more and more concentrated on on those cities, in a way that uh, helps to sharpen, uh, uh, not always helps, probably the wrong word, it makes inequality in a sense much sharper. Now Whitlam recognised that issue of spatial inequality as being a, a very important issue, but today uh, it's very much on the back burner, whereas I think it's quite fundamental uh, to the way our economy works whether it's fair or not fair, I think a lot of the unfairness uh, flows from uh, a failure to uh, manage population growth. We have this extremely high level of population growth, uh, as high as we've had at any period since the war, and we're not managing that very well. And, you know, governments get frightened of it. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, talking about what we, uh, about inequality, what we hear a lot about is intergenerational inequality and this idea that, um, particularly those at the, maybe, maybe they're younger, but those with, without assets or those on, on government payments, uh, uh, actually not doing so great, but there's people that do have assets and superannuation and so forth that get a whole lot of kind of, you know, I suppose concessions or ability to, to minimise tax at the other end. And so there's this sense in the community that yeah. we do have rules for some and rules for yeah, others. Right. The polarity, isn't it? You know, if you look at superannuation at the moment, it's costing in subsidies uh, for superannuation, the taxpayer, uh, almost as much as cost the, as we as we spend on the age pension. So we're spending billions of dollars, handouts really, uh, to support uh, superannuation. At the other end of the life cycle, young people who in my day, and when I'm a, an old man, but as a younger person, uh, you, uh, all the people in the office where I started work were starting to save and build money for, you know, buying the house in the suburbs and all of that. Uh, today, young people are dissaving. 
they're, they're building up debts, debts related to education. Uh, they're they're uh, being required to pay for health insurance. They're having to pay back for education. They're uh, uh, deferring uh, uh, relationships, deferring marriage, deferring partnering. They're, they're living in a way uh, a much more risky kind of life in which it's not certain uh, where they'll be now. In an earlier age, there's much more certainty. You may not have a very high expectation, but you're going to finish up somewhere uh, and you you really had a sort of government guarantee to a job. But today, I think young people are afflicted by risk, whereas for them, uh, an investment would help to build confidence. So to build some kind of uh, uh, youth guarantee that gave uh, younger people a greater sense that they were citizens, people that the country owed something to, and they were to be given a chance to uh, make their mark in the world, whereas I think the attitude is much more to be frightened of young people, that they might do something, get onto drugs or, you know, uh, crime or whatever, and effectively that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think if you treat people like dirt, well, uh, uh, you won't get much back. Just, just tuned in, we're speaking with uh, Brian Howe, former Deputy Prime Minister and also a professorial fellow at the University of Melbourne, all about a whole range of issues relating to inequality and specifically the concept of a universal basic income. And that kind of attitude, I guess, is a really key thing. And, and I wonder where you, you see the ideological divide at this point in time between the two major parties. There's a lot of talk about company tax cuts and, and the belief that this might translate to kind of higher wage growth and so on. On the other side, Labor's talking about making inequality a central pillar of, of their election campaign when, when we face another federal election. Is this a really uh, sort of stark ideological divide between these two parties who haven't always been so divided in recent times? No, we haven't been. I think that uh, the parties have tended to be on a unity ticket pursuing uh, uh, fairly uh, tough uh, economic uh, policies. But uh, I think the economic debate is uh, changing a little at the moment. And uh, it's important uh, that we we look at the tax side of the equation because a lot of the uh, problems that say, for example, young people getting into uh, uh, home ownership really do relate to the massive tax subsidies that we've provided in the past uh, for people who are now enjoying uh, very substantial wealth as a result of what's happening in housing markets, whereas for young people, the uh, uh, struggle to move from rent, I think for many young people today, will never own a own home. And uh, for the first time, Australia has people now coming into the age bracket uh, who are not homeowners, especially women. Uh, this is a result of breakup of marriage and uh, people having much less settled lives. So women get to the end of the life course and they have no assets whatever and they are uh, forced to uh, to rent. Now, for young people today, they're going to live their lives without assets and when they get towards the end of the life, now, the whole social security system was based on the assumption that older people would finish up owning their own home. That was the Menzies' dream of the 1950s. Everyone would uh, uh, be a homeowner. Uh, we never invested very strongly in rental accommodation. We have the lowest level of public housing of any country in the OECD. At a time when the populations are ageing, we just don't have the tools to deal. It's like with we're not them. set up for what we've created, and we're I, not I think. Set up, no. And I think it's interesting. I heard um, the the shadow deputy treasurer um, Andrew Lee talk about superannuation recently and say, look. 
it's not it's there to live off it's not there as your children's inheritance uh-huh. and i thought that's quite interesting and i suppose you were in those governments where we you know superannuation came into its own and oh, yeah, it was never set up as an inheritance was it no i think the assumption was in the uh, uh the early 1990s when superannuation was introduced uh that people would tend to have enough money to live on through super and there'd be a reduction in pension payments. Now, because John Howard eased the income test so substantially, uh, now people are getting both uh, superannuation and the age uh, pension and access to a health benefit card uh, as well. So this has become extraordinarily costly, much more costly uh, than it had been uh, at the time when uh, these changes were... Uh, when the superannuation changes were being uh, introduced. So policies, uh, it's a tricky, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a tricky job really to get the balance right. And I think uh, for younger people, uh, they've become the forgotten people, you know, the Menzies phrase, uh, forgotten people. Well, young people, uh, I think, uh, uh, we invest in, in education and higher education, but in vocational education, uh, we've had this, uh, uh, terrible mismatch of, uh, the market-driven vocational education, which has cost hundreds of millions of dollars wasted for the young people who should be the absolute fundamental concern, young people who are vulnerable, uh, because they're not there, uh, at the top of the university tree. They require, uh, proper, uh, not technical education necessarily, but education that's built on helping to build their capabilities and their confidence, uh, uh, that kind of language, rather than having too narrow a view. The employers very often, they want someone, uh, you know, prepared to do this particular job, whereas what the younger person needs is a capability that gives uh, him or her the flexibility to be able to move around the labour market, which is so much more... Uh, uh, testing today than it's been for a very long time. Mm. And you've spoken about the universal basic income as being a, a, an approach that could alleviate some of these issues in, in poverty and, and reducing inequality as well and it's something yeah, that's yeah, been... Very idealistic about it Digby I, <laughs> I, I'm very keen on, on William Morris and a uh, great uh, 19th century socialist and uh, Morris uh, saw work not uh, as, as self-fulfilling you know now, for young people, they may not want to do what society wants them to do. They may want to play a flute or they may want to uh, uh, be in uh, the theatre or they may want to be artists doing modelling and uh, creative things with it. They may themselves, they may have all sorts of ideas about what they could do. Uh, now, I think in a sense uh, we close off those options because we don't give them enough basic income just to think for themselves and move in a way that uh, uh, kind of resonates with the lifestyle they want to live, not the one that uh, you know tends to be caught up in the welfare trap that mm. uh, they are presented with. And it, it seems like quite, I mean, a radical idea when it's it's expressed like that, and it's it's difficult immediately to see that kind of maybe taking hold in Australia. But there are trials um, being undertaken at the moment in Finland, instituted by a centre-right government yeah, a and also some of, other uh, places too. Around the world, there are many trials in Toronto's major ones just come out and, and interesting, it showed all the benefits that would flow. Mm. Uh, go right back to Henderson, the Brotherhood of St Lawrence ran a little test then uh, to show uh, what the benefits might be of if you took away the problem of income, uh, how would people manage? Well, they managed a lot better. 
and uh, I think uh, we've got a whole lot of prejudices that are there and that's what uh, Henderson worried about and Atkinson who was the later great promoter of uh, what he called participation income he thought uh, uh, because, you know, you've got all this prejudice about young people uh, not doing anything, you know, going off and surfing or something. Uh, he he, uh, he clothed what he had to say around that participation income, and that's the thing I'm trying to get mm. at, is that I think young people do want to participate. They do want to get a place in society, a place in their community, and they want to do things. But, uh, you know, it's a matter of releasing that, uh, that potential. And I think you release that potential better if you give young people more autonomy. Let them feel what they are, that they're the boss. They're doing what they want to do. They're not doing what society expects of them to do. And if they get that chance, and that's liberal philosophy, really. You know, they put a lot of emphasis, liberals, mm. on the individual. And I think uh, young people have enormous potential to contribute, but only if they feel backed, if they feel that they've got... Uh, something behind them is there is there enough commonality between the experiences of kind of young people in in a sort of voting sense because i suppose um you probably can talk about a vote when it comes to people in the pension or whatever and say okay they're going to have similar views across some areas but is that really the case with younger people and could there be a mobilization where people can actually start voting on these issues or or are they kind of like herding cats when it comes to I, I think uh, there is about to be a major exercise. People are working on a uh, kind of national uh, uh, focus on youth, uh, kind of not a royal commission, but an inquiry into what young people want and what they need and what they would support and what they might vote for and so on. And I think young people are often very hard on themselves. And, uh, you know, I think uh, my kids' friends, you know, in the past, uh, I'm quite shocked by how hard they are on their, on their own generation. But uh, I think uh, uh, we've got to listen and uh, I think uh, we've got to build a society in which young people are seen as our future. And I think uh, that uh, view of younger people has to, uh, in a sense, uh, not be covered too much with uh, the prejudice of what we did in our generation. Because I think, uh, uh, to go back to the... uh, the technological revolution that we've just been through, it, it just releases uh, enormous danger possibilities that uh, didn't exist in earlier generations. I'm glad. I, I thought you were going to say smashed avocado then. I'm going, no, <laughs> let's not talk about that. But I wonder, do you think that currently we have the political leadership that could bring about economic change that we need? Because it seems that we talk about, you know, we have these kind of um, headline issues that pop up, but there doesn't necessarily seem to be a cohesive policy and I know we can go back to the Henry review of tax and so forth and say look there is a view out there of how we can make this work in a policy sense but do we have the the right people there at the moment that can steer steer Australia to a point where we can reduce the inequality that we have yeah, that's always a hard question. One doesn't, as, a, as someone who's had his go, yeah. you don't yeah. like to, uh, <laughs> you don't like to, uh, you know, sort of put it, put the current generation down. But I think, uh, I think Andrew Lee is a very interesting politician. So you mentioned, uh, mentioned him because he's, uh, he's both a sociologist and an economist. Now, I suppose the prejudice I've got is a bit anti-economist. I think, uh, in a sense, uh, the economists uh, uh, assume they know about people, but they really have uh, a very narrow view of uh, 
I think, a very narrow view of uh, of self-interest, a kind of view that ultimately, in the end of the day, everything's going to be driven by self-interest. Now, in a sense, if you're going to liberate people, you've got to uh, expect that they are capable of altruism, they're capable of wanting to do things for other people. And I think if you look at uh, much of the voluntary uh, effort that goes in Australia, whether it's international aid or refugees or whatever, who's out there doing the marching? Who's out there really wanting to see change? Well, it's young people. Mm. So in a sense, we've got to liberate that uh, power. And uh, I think in America, this uh, current wave in terms of gun control of young people suddenly taking charge, that's that's very exciting. But but we're also seeing, I mean, if we talk about economics, some of those old assumptions and um, I guess uh, predictors of of the way that uh, things would would work in the future with regard to the workforce and unemployment and so on, those uh, relationships between, for example, wage growth and unemployment no longer are behaving in ways that they used to either. So we're living in quite a different world that requires a new set of solutions it feels like I, I certainly believe that I think we are living in a very different world and and I think it's the sociologists you know I'm so interested in sociological theory and I think the, the sociologists in a way who are recognising uh, how fundamental these changes are for people and so therefore the need to uh, develop uh, fresher and newer approaches and uh, I'm very keen on Manuel Castells who's a uh, American, uh, uh, originally a Spanish left-wing uh, uh, sociologist and economist, and uh, Robert Reich, I think, is a very important American uh, person who analyses the labour market and sees the danger of polarisation that we have now. So I think there is a time for uh, more radical uh, ideas, and uh, I think Andrew Lee is interesting because he's got that grasp of both uh, Putnam and the sociology front on one side, and then of course he's uh, an economist on the other so I'm I'm sort of uh, following him a bit because I think as a younger person uh, he's got uh, a, a future ahead of him in politics and uh, it could be he could be one of the people that opens up the discussion. And uh, you have been writing on the universal basic income. Are you con- going to continue to write on this topic um, as I suppose something that might uh, get some contemporary interest or following? Today. Yes, I think uh, we uh, we hope to publish a book coming out of our conference uh, on social security and universal basic income and then we'll follow that with an essay that tries to set a policy direction. I think people want uh, practical uh, proposals and uh, that's what we're thinking about, how to bring this down to a level that... Uh, uh, might solve some of the some of the problems. Uh, I think it's it, if it's talked about as a very general idea, I think uh, people will tend to see only see the problems. But if you bring it down to a more specific uh, proposal, how it might be financed and who it would be directed towards, uh, a bit similar to the family payment stuff I mentioned earlier, then uh, I think we're likely to get people on board and interested. And uh, uh, well, we're very hopeful. Yeah. Well, we've kept you a long time. Thank you so much for speaking with us on Triple R. Um, Brian uh, Brian Howe, uh, former Deputy PM in Australia. uh, You can find him at the University of Melbourne these days where he's a professorial fellow and it sounds like you can uh, follow his work in this area on the basic universal basic income. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. 